You're listening to Growth Vertical, a podcast that inspires people to reach the next vertical point in their journeys. My name's Neil Patel and I'm a digital marketer. I'll be sitting down to share my experiences to help others find the right strategies to grow themselves, their careers and their businesses. back to another episode of Growth Vertical. Today we're joined by Joel Stevenson from Yesware, a global set, a global leader in sales productivity software. And today we're going to be talking about how to use A-B testing to increase productivity and drive growth. Joel has had a variety of sales and marketing roles, in, including, you know, currently he's the CEO at Yesware, but he's been the managing director at Wayfair. He's worked over at Ariba, Inverse, and also Verizon. So, you know, Joel is also the host, if you guys haven't heard already, of a podcast called The Hard Sell. So, and those of you who don't know, I definitely would say to go over there if you're looking for uh, sales strategies and tactics to drive growth. So check it out. But anyway, uh, that's for that. You know, you know what we're talking about today, but I really want to hear from Joel. So Joel, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. It's great to have you here on the episode. But before yeah. we get into it, could we hear a bit about yourself? Like, where did it all start with you? How did you end up at Yesware? Yeah, well, it's uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a bit of a winding journey, I suppose. I, as, as you mentioned, I started my career in sales, and I took a little bit of a break to do my MBA to try to you know become a little bit more quantitative. Um, after that, I worked at a, a sales consultancy for a period of time. Um, and then eventually I found my way to this little company called uh, csnstores.com, uh, which later became wayfair.com. And I was there for seven and a half years and um, did a bunch of jobs that mostly had nothing to do with selling. But um, uh, early on as a sort of a, a test, we decided to, to see if we could sell directly to people like interior designers and builders and contractors, that sort of thing. And that, that started to work. And then, you know, eventually we grew it to the point where I ended up spending all my time on that. And we took that little division. Um, when I took it, sort of retook it over, it was around a hundred million. And then in, in a couple of years later, it was about 400 million um, right. in revenue. Um, and so, so that was pretty exciting, but you know, Wayfair eventually, it was just a huge company at that point. And, and I prefer the, the earlier stage. And so I, I figured it was time for a change. And we had an investor and board member in common between Wayfair and Yesware, this guy near Jaguar from Battery Ventures. And he introduced me to the Yesware team. And I thought it'd be pretty interesting to go from sort of a buyer of tech, of that sort of tech to a seller of tech. Because one of the ways that we scaled that team so quickly at Wayfair was, you know, really leveraging technology to drive sales productivity. And so I was already sort of into and excited by the space and thought it'd be, it'd be fun to, to sort of go to, to the other side. And I, I, I probably would be remiss if I, if I, if I didn't also mention that Yesware was just recently acquired um, by a company called Vendasta, um, which I like to think of as sort of the operating system for companies that are selling digital solutions into small and medium business. So we're, uh, that's just a few weeks old. We're super excited about that. That's Because you're an avid user of Yesware, Myself, um, actually helping the sales team sort of find ways the use and processes behind the tool so that we can sort of scale. Um, actually, we found that really because the previous um, role as a growth manager, right, 
it had one of the one of the big things that was going on then was a lot of hiring, right? So we were hiring constantly mm-hmm. different salespeople. I think we went from because for that company, hundred percent year on year growth, and it's head that five people when I started to like plus. Uh, the use of that, the use of improving productivity one, but to also increase the effect, improve the effectiveness right of the outreach, which is using to the idea of process and productivity, right? Um, I'm not sure if that was the message that you had, um, and whether that was the USP of course. Uh, we we found it to be like super helpful. Definitely helped us win because of it yeah we've been uh, i suppose fortunate over time to um, be able to help a lot of really high growth sales teams like the number of companies that sort of started in early stages and went public on yes we're like there's quite a number of them like just like off the top of my head uh jfrog monday.com uh right. cloudflare twitter like I, the list sort of goes on and so it, it's been pretty neat to watch people use um tech like ours to be able to scale a, a team from, you know, handful of people up to, you know, in some cases, thousands. Yeah, I think it's, it definitely is popular. And you guys, I think at Yesware, the experience, significant uptake of the tool in a short amount of time, right? Um, sorry, it seemed like you're going to say something. Oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, yeah, we, we, you know, we, I mean, one of the things we sort of pride ourselves on is yeah. uh, the sort of product led motion where it's like, it's really easy to use Yesware. And so the barriers to entry are quite low. You know, we have a free tier of the software. It's, you know, you don't need armies of ops and enablement people to sort of get it set up. And so that's one of the ways in which it's it's possible for it to grow is because, you know, the, the barriers, to, the, the friction between new people getting started on is relatively low. Yeah, I mean, we were using Gmail, right? And that was probably one of the unique selling points behind that because it integrated directly mm-hmm. into Gmail and it was honestly great for a startup team. And, you know, predominantly we talk, on this podcast, we talk about, um, predominantly most of the audience actually are professionals that are growing or in a growing startup and trying to do, trying to drive growth there or there's actually founders actually trying to grow this startup themselves. When it comes to like smaller teams, I know that we felt, I felt as well, specifically around, hey, this needs to be an easy to use integrable tool. And of course, allow us to uh, reach the target audience in the most effective way in the shortest amount of time, of course, but also help us find a way to uh, monitor and analyze those campaigns really effectively without the use of uh, too many operational sort of processes in the background, but just sort of to get started, right? Almost to stay lean and agile and get things something out the door. So do you think, I think that's sort of interesting because most of the, you know, when it comes to smaller teams, do you think sometimes that there's a negative view on, on sales by some of the founders when they're starting out? Because when you're smaller, you think, oh God, it's cold calling, it's cold emailing. We're just, you know, spray and pray tactics is what we call it. And, you know, they work sometimes if you're doing it effectively, but why do you think that has such an impact on like the productivity, the velocity of the growth as well of the business? Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny with founders because I think a lot of times founders forget the fact that 
many of the early sales came from their network uh, yeah. and warm intros. And then it's like, okay, well now this is working. Like we're starting to figure it out. Let's hire a sales team. And it turns out the sales team doesn't have that network. And like, they've just got to go back to, you know, the old ways of what's working and maybe you don't really have a demand gen motion set up. And so, yeah, it's like, you got to go, you know, very old school tactics of trying to find the buyers that you think are going to be the most interesting and just try to get in touch with them somehow. And so, yeah, it is, it is harder um, because you like, there's that awkward period where it's like, you know, the, and the founder, I think oftentimes also has by nature of being the founder can sometimes just get better access to people um, than a salesperson can, because it's like, you know, somebody cold emails me and like, oh, like I'm a founder. I'm like trying to figure this out. Can you please help me? I probably more likely to respond to that than, you know, hi, I'm, you know, an account executive with XYZ company, and this is going to be great uh, type of thing. So there, you did, there definitely is like a, a sort of a dip that, that would typically happen um, because eventually you start to figure out, oh, well, this is the ICP. This is where they hang out. This is how we get in touch with them. This is how we build the top of funnel, which then allows people to salespeople to work more on, you know, warmer inbounds versus strictly cold, cold emails. But you sort of have to get through that valley to, to get to that point, you know, typically. Yeah, I, I agree. I think even as a growth marketer, we tend, to, we tend to say that if you want a particular tactic is for the founder to actually get involved in the outreach. It's all credible and it shows. I don't know what that is, but there's something about it in terms of the authority behind receiving an email from the actual founder because it, it shows some form of... Not to say that it's not... Hearing from a salesperson isn't serious. It's just that there's a sort of spin or I guess some form of view on having us to reach out to you, we are like, maybe I'll park it and just do it later. Cause mm. there's maybe a hundred people like after you. So, I guess in the first, in the early days, right. And, and um, you probably talk about this on your podcast as well, but where should, where should people, where should the sales team really be spending their time? I and mean, we, we talk about, a, we're going to be talking about AB testing soon, but where mm. should, in the startup days for, for growing teams in the early days, what do you think is vital for these sales teams to actually focus on? Yeah, to me, I think the, you know, the, the most important part is uh, I, I had the, a guest on, on my podcast one time, this guy, Matt Bloomberg, who was the Return Path founder and is now CEO of a, a company called Bolster. And he talked about this, you know, the sort of the evolution of like you start with whiteboard selling and then you move to PowerPoint selling and then you move to ultimately like Adobe Acrobat selling. But there, right. in those earlier periods, when you're when you're really trying to figure it out. You know, there's a lot that can go wrong and like product market fit, I think, can be somewhat elusive at times. And so to me, one of the most important things the sales team needs to do in, the, in those early days is feed information back to the company, which is why often the first rep is, a, is sort of this missionary, like very different type of a rep than the, than the one that you would typically hire. And it's also not typically the one that's going to run your sales team you know, as you've got a hundred reps, it, it's a very unique type of individual that, um, you know, is entrepreneurial in many ways that is a good listener and that can try to figure out what the market is saying and then feed that back to the company, either in terms of, you know, the features to focus on or, or, or how to, to talk about the company or position the company or what the offering is, how to demo, um, uh, the offering. And then also, you know, a big part, which I think is sometimes overlooked, really try to figure out the willingness to pay uh, because that can have a huge difference on the, uh, you know, the pricing model and packaging can have a huge impact on the trajectory of your co company ultimately. And, you know, if you're not a, 
you know, sort of a strictly product-led organization, if you're really sales-led, then the only way you're going to get that information um, is from the sales team. And so, you know, before you can really worry about scaling, you really got to make sure that you have a thing that can right. scale. And and those first salespeople, if you if you find the right ones, are are not only going to be able to help you, I think, work into that, but will also, um, uh, you know, tell you if you're off. You know, and if 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 serious uh, uh, amendments or you know revisions of the model are required, yeah. And do you think that there's um? I guess it's more about that sort of prioritization, right? Of what to, what you're doing at the very beginning, because either the lack of time or the fact that you're moving so quickly, you can't afford to be sm- spending time on that sort of the smaller items, right? Um, so it's almost like how how would you describe that sort of value sales fo- like focus, right? of making sales day-to-day more more productive and sort of maintain that they hit those agenda, those top agenda items? Yeah, we have some general philosophies on this. You know, one is, you know, there's a certain level of activity that's just required. Like if you're if you're not putting the, um, you know, the level of effort required and, and putting enough sort of activities into the top of your middle or bottom, wherever you are in the funnel, if, if the activity level isn't high enough, it's very difficult to achieve results typically just because sales, um, especially early stage sales result, you know, it, it involves a tremendous amount of no's uh, to get to a single yes. And so you do, there's a certain, a, a certain volume aspect to that. Um, you know, and then it's sort of like, well, using your time wisely, uh, you know, we're, we're of course a little bit biased on this, but, you know, we feel like you really shouldn't, you know, to the degree possible, you really don't want to spend your time doing things that you could automate. Um, so rote tasks and scheduling meetings and, you know, writing the same email twice. Like you don't, you don't want to spend your time on that stuff because where you have to spend your time is preparing well for meetings and then executing those meetings well, and then having really good follow-up. Uh, you know, that, that, that is where, you know, the, the, the excellent salespeople tend to separate themselves from the, from the not go so good salespeople. And then sort of an, an adjunct to that as it relates to follow-up is especially in the early days, I mean, it's true of all times, but I think especially early when like your, your leads may be very precious is you just, you can't accept unforced errors in the sales process. And like by an unforced error, I mean that, you know, you didn't follow up in a timely way, or you didn't follow up with all the information required, or you just kind of half-assed, uh, you know, a demo or like whatever it ends up being like, you, you just can't have that. Now it's one thing if you're in a deal and and they lose their budget or you're in a deal yeah. and it turns out that there's actually a competitor that's a better fit. Like what, like what are you can accept those types of things, but you know, what you sort of can accept is, Oh man, I just got so busy with all these things that I just forgot to follow up with that guy, and like now it's now that deal's dead. Yeah, it's it's it's. I guess it's that sort of um, run when something hits you, or when you get a, when you get some feedback from something, you start to like run. Because when I say you you run, you're sprinting essentially the finish line to close that deal, and and we we get it right. The I guess incentive is well at the end of the day, right, for the salesperson. Uh, but there's an I guess there's some form of trade-off, right? That the more we talk about the prep work, like you mentioned, and sort of cutting down those repetitive tasks. Like we used to get a bank of like the, the most successful email templates, right? I don't mm-hmm. know if we're going to be talking about like A-B testing in a minute, but A-B testing is part of that. If you can somehow influence growth and sort of have some form of framework in place where you can say, hey, well, these are my promotion, my promotion templates and these we know it works with this audience 
and then these are my like demoted because they either didn't work for some reason or you know it's just a simple okay i'm not going to use these i'm just going to copy paste mm-hmm. these ones but the copy paste will have some form of personalizations mm-hmm. which kind of brings me to marketing and sales right at the very beginning i usually make a strong point about yes we do need to get something out but i feel like it's not just about okay i'm going to source all the founders or source um, every like marketing director or something for someone that's going to be, you know, in direct contact with that tool or is going to sign off or is a pure decision maker for that tool or software you're trying to sell, for example. Um, I usually make a point, you should be integrating every effort with marketing. The reason why is because both are the country. Um, and how, how important do you think it is? Because we can talk about ICPs and so, so ideal customer profiles and everything like that, right? But the more I believe, anyway, the, the higher, the more heavy lifting you do up front, the better it's going to be in terms of either it's response, open rates, response rates, and then also the deals that are actually, the velocity of those deals or the pipeline uh, velocity, right? That's uh, going towards close. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is why you see the, the rise of revenue operations more so than, you know, marketing operations and sales operations living in a silo because companies are finding that this works. And, you know, to my mind, this started the point at which you could upload a list or a lookalike list into an advertising platform is the point at which all these things had to converge. Right. Because it used to be that marketing sort of dealt in you know, advertisements and keywords and, you know, and all these things are sort of bringing in like generic demand into the funnel. Um, I mean, hopefully it's not fully generic, but like, you know, it's mostly generic. Um, But the point at which you can start to say like, well, these are the actual people that we're going to start bringing into the funnel. Like then it's like, well, the lines between marketing and sales start to blur a little bit just then because it used to be only sales would go out to specific individuals. Now, now the marketer is sort of doing that in some sense. So you better be aligned on, on who those people are. And then the the other thing that that you see is, you know, the classic, uh, oh, well, you know, marketing, uh, you know, blames sales for not closing all these great leads that they have. And then sales blames marketing for like, well, we're all the good leads. Uh, and so I think if there's, <laughs> if there's a shared, you know, I think the, the tighter those groups are, and if you, you know, I think to, particularly with a, a, a strong RevOps, you know, uh, organization, you can a lot of times get over a bunch of that stuff is, is sort of point two. And then point three is, you know, the funnel goes both ways. I mean, we like to think of these funnels as unidirectional, but, you know, right. people sometimes, you know, get close to buying decision, then they fall out for whatever reason. Like, well, now they need to be in a remarketing campaign. And, and you know, so, so if all these things aren't well integrated, um, it, I think it's really tough to pull off sort of a, a modern um, sales and marketing funnel. Yeah, I, I agree. And we usually make, a, I know it's a lot of work up front to even, do any research, carry out any research, right? And have that I see those ideal customer profiles or your buyer center created. But I feel, I think what I loved, what I feel like we should do in the startup community specifically, or even scale ups and the, the larger businesses, you know, these, these customer profiles can change. The buyer center can change at some point, or it can be, we need to adapt to it, right? So it needs a review. I'm not sure if this is done at Yesware, but I'm presuming that you know, we know that it has a ripple effect on the effectiveness and the the influence of the pipeline being closed at the end of the day. So if you can somehow ignore what sort of filter out the noise in the beginning, then, you know, it's going to be way more productive for the sales team. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Like- and, and that's yeah. And, and I think you really 
you mostly only get to that through trial and error, you know, and sort of observing the results of, you know, like, oh, well, if we tighten the funnel, uh, you know, this happens to sales productivity, but maybe we tightened it too much and now the salespeople don't have enough to do. And so there's a constant, you know, sort of back and forth of trying to optimize, you know, what's going in and, and what's coming out. Yeah. It, and I guess when you say trial and error, we get, I guess that brings us over to the A-B testing, right? So it's obviously a phrase that's thrown around sales and marketing, but what do you think it actually means in your eyes? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in, in the strict you know, marketing sense where, you know, you think about a tool like a, you know, landing page optimization or, you know, sort of a, um, you know, a, a, a one-to-many email tool like a MailChimp or something like that. Like there are sort of like, sort of like specific ways that this works, right? Like we're, we're testing subject lines, we're testing, you know, uh, images, we're testing all kinds of things and we're trying to drive, you know, a set of results um, as part of that. And I think in, in sales, I, I tend to think of it as, uh, depending on what your sale, your sales process is. So if you're, if your sales process is very quick, maybe relatively low dollars, uh, you've got a very high number of, of potential people that could buy your product. It almost looks more like a, like a consumer sale than it does a business sale. Then I think you can actually do a lot of those traditional, um, automated, you know, sort of with high levels of sort of statistical rigor types of methods. The further away your sales process moves towards enterprise selling, which is, you know, could be a year long and involves 10 people in the buying committee and 20 or 50 touches across, you know, tons of people. There's just many more things that can go wrong and there's there's much more variability. And so the ability to control a process in such a way that you could actually get a robust statistical result, I think it's kind of a fool's errand. Now, that's not to say that you wouldn't A-B test. I think then it just shifts to a little bit more of a, it's a bit of a mind shift change, which is as a sales rep or as a sales manager, as a sales executive, I constantly need to test and iterate my approach to make it better. And so it becomes a little bit more on the sales team to do that versus sort of a, you know, a centralized ops team that's sort of controlling everything um, from on high. But so I think it's, 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 you know, in some sense it can be, uh, you know, more, more of that, you know, kind of like very strict, you know, sort of formal approach to A-B testing. But I generally think of it as like, you just need to have a test and improve, you know, test and iterate mindset in selling, just like you do in marketing or product development or any other part of your company. Yeah. I, in the past, we've set up things like, um, like a sales activity sheet or anything like that. So that when you can, let's say we talk a bit about statistical significance, if you're running any a b test you want to make sure that the data is believable right or the results are believable and if you're going to rerun the test you know hey i'm so confident that this will uh be successful again in the future right and one thing i've noticed is that if you actually set up those sales activity trackers and you sort of automate various aspects of that part all it is is after let's say you are running to an a b test with two emails uh, but to two different to maybe Two, two of the same emails, but two, two different decision makers that you feel like a certain use case or a certain selling point, right, is catered to. That I found that the if you have that trackable resource in place, all you have to do at the end of the quarter is essentially adjust the date and then just collect the numbers and that's it, right? You know, hey, I've maybe we can run this a bit longer, maybe, maybe not, right? Or maybe this shows a bit of promise. The idea is if you can get some form of feeling that it's actually going to work or it's not, right based on that data that you have then it's always going to be great so i would always advocate for automating it like and i don't know 
I know you mentioned there might be some form of manual process behind it. But do you think that that manual process, once you found out it's more comfortable, you'll then move to a more automated aspect? Well, I guess it, you know, it depends how far down the curve of automation we're talking. If we're talking like, you know, uh, AI, ML, like constant, you know, derivations of stuff to try to, to integrate, you know, iterate into the right thing. Like, yeah. um, I, 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 I probably somebody's doing that and it, it, you can probably make it work. I, I haven't seen that. I mean, for we're tending to work more with um, account executive types. And so like the, the way that it would work, you know, more typically in a platform like ours is you would set up your templates, you would set up your campaigns, and then you can watch the results of those templates and campaigns over time. And so then you can actually see like, oh yes, this outperforms that, um, or this works much better. And and so for, and, and, and we see teams doing that centrally, you know, sometimes there's a, there's a rev ops group that's like actually writing all the content and putting the campaigns together. And then the reps are just personalizing them on the back end, and, and you can sort of, or sometimes the reps do it themselves and, you know, and there, there are sort of pluses and minuses to both approaches. But I think the, the important part of that is that somebody's looking at it and saying, oh, yes, this actually is outperforming this other thing. And then when you see that and you have conviction that it's actually better than that, then it gets shared across the, uh, the rest of the org. Yeah, I agree. When people are moving fast, it's more like, I want, I want the result now. I want to know straight away, right? Over Out of 100 emails that are sent, it's like not enough data. So it's it's okay to have your tests running and then looking at the data to say, hey, now when we look at it like a quarter later or something, these, these obviously work. And you just know that you have a bank. I think so long that it's recorded, um, then you're able to make those you're able to make those connections between the data points, like, mm -hmm. like you're saying, and just understand it after a period of time. So I guess in terms of automation, right, there is, well, I guess let's, let's actually steer away from automation. Let's talk about the elements of an A-B test, right? And there must be, and you've probably seen a, thousands of these, if not like hundreds of thousands, but it's probably like what sales elements do you think are key to have in an A-B test? What, what aspects do you think people really should focus on in the beginning and what's just noise? Yeah. Well, I, I think it, at the very at the very beginning, to the extent that you're trying to reach people via email, I think it's it's mostly the same set of things that marketers look at to try to test. Like you want to try to test your subject line, you want to try to test what you're saying. You know, you may have an attachment. Um, you want you want to try to attest to try to test that. Um, you know, various calls to action, you know, uh, if you've got images, you can sort of test the images. There's, there's a whole variety of the, of, of the things that you can sort of start and that, you know, that, that could form the, the basis of a test, uh, sort of a simple test. And then over time, you know, you, you generally would sort of advance to the point where you're then starting to test things like series of communication. So let's test, all right, we got one email that works, like let's test the follow-up email and let's try to get that better. And then let's figure out if calling on day three is better than calling on day four. And then let's see if a, a LinkedIn touch is actually good to, to weave in somewhere. And so, so you eventually start from something relatively simple and then you, you might eventually get to a place where um, you're building something uh, much more complex. Uh, and then as you, as you go further on, there's other things that, that you can test as well, right? Like I think people are getting more and more rigorous about 
actually uh, test, test and iterate in demos. So making sure that when you give a demo, it's done the way that you know is the best way and not letting reps just, you know, kind of run whatever script that they want. But again, like you've got to have some way to then see that. So you might have to have a tool like a wingman or something where you're, you're recording all the demos and then you've got some analysis on the back end. Like so much of selling now is, you know, can be measured and can be digital. And that's, I think that's really opened up the playbook for what can, you can actually take this sort of test and iterate approach to. Yeah. And I think when, when you get a test or you get an environment that's so got so many complex variables, it's probably typically easy to start optimizing for the wrong sort of variable. Right. And you may have come across this as well and seen it, you know, hundreds of times. And I come across it too, even today where you may think that something is, uh, you, you, you've got a conviction about a certain variable that you're like, hey, this is definitely what it is. But in the end, you find out it's not. And oh my God, you've been optimizing for the wrong variable. But why, why do you think that happens, right? Why do you think we, we start to optimize for something like an open rate when an open rate doesn't really have the major impact we're looking for, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think in some sense it's the, I mean, it's the thing that comes back the fastest. So there's this, there's this idea that like, oh well, now like I know that the, you know, open rate is better or worse. I'm just going to make a decision based on that when like maybe all the data hasn't come in about stuff that's a little bit further on. So I think there's there's that aspect. You know, it's often the easiest to to test. Um, uh, you know, I think the, ideally what you want to do is is sort of push it deeper and deeper in. So you want to see if you know people are clicking on links or people are you know looking at attachments. I mean, ultimately, most of these emails are designed or, or the, these campaigns are designed to book a meeting. And so what what we try to get our customers to do is to is to put you know our in, in other platforms we're similarly like you know trying to put the the meeting scheduler link inside of the email and so that we know that when somebody clicks on that link from this particular campaign it's just like a marketing campaign where there's like you know the equivalent of a utm code and so we know that this meeting was booked as a result of this campaign and so now you're starting to measure you know deeper outcome level metrics than sort of the higher you know higher in the funnel you know more vanity types of of metrics yeah, I think that that's the key word, right? The vanity sort of instant feedback and instant gratification type of metric, which we're probably stuck in these days, um, you know, because of social media and that sort of thing. So we might, maybe it has some inherent impact on, indirect impact, sorry, on on how, you're, how you perceive, you know, the value of that particular campaign. And, but yeah, I, I, I agree in terms of... Uh, optimizing for things like the open rate and stuff is almost like a feel good and doesn't really showcase what's going to move the needle for the business. So it's important to like optimize yeah. for something like a response rate, right? We, I think mentioned, you mentioned about the complex variables again, so going back to that. And you said that at one point you can sort of create, you'll end up testing for like multiple things and that, that can get kind of messy, but what, I guess, how do you sort of look at whether something is going to be believable or not? So when I talk about that, we're talking about statistical significance, right? With any form of testing, we know that we need to be sure that we can evaluate something effectively. But with all these variables, what are, you, what are your actual thoughts on getting enough data to compare these variables um, from when, when, when you're like trying to optimize for something? Yeah. I mean, I think all, you know, 
more data is always better, but you know, sometimes in a selling process, you just don't have that. And so when you don't, yeah. you know, when you can't actually, you know, run it through, uh, you know, an algorithm to find out if it's, you know, statistically significant, uh, you know, that, that then you sort of get into like maybe more of the, the art of this than the, than the science of it in some sense. And sometimes that comes down to, uh, you know, trusting your most experienced reps to see a pattern and understand like, oh yeah, like actually this is better. Um, or, you know, yeah, I, I see this is a little bit better, but actually like the people that have clicked on this thing are actually not the people that we want. Like it's, it's, it comes down to a little bit more of a judgment, um, than it is sort of a, a strictly statistical matter. And so that in those cases, I think the best you can do is, is try to work with some data and try to work with some judgment. And hopefully if you're, if you're paying attention, your judgment gets better over time and you can make better decisions about things. But I think, you know, that's the nature of, of sales, particularly enterprise selling where you just don't typically have as many at bats. And so, you know, you, you probably are going to have to make decisions with less data than you ideally want. Um, but hopefully you've got somebody that's sitting there looking at the data that, you know, that can exert some level of, you know, sort of professional or, or expert opinion um, on that to, to try to maximize your, your chances of getting it right. I agree. I think in an, in an age where we have sort of so much data to look at or we have no data to start with, right, it's important to sort of consider the qualitative aspect of things. Um, for example, anyone that we work with, uh, for startups, they're usually selling to enterprises. And so those sales teams typically have zero data, right, to, to help them in anything. So the idea is, hey, well, if you're hiring into the team, uh, hiring a sales rep into the team, or you're doing any form of sales yourself, I think you need to ask yourself, what have you think, what do you think has worked in the past for you? And what have you seen as like outshun other campaigns, for example? And that's one thing I always say, like, you know, I always take my experience into like a new project or, or a, a new account or anything. And we'll just say for a, a client that, Hey, well, when, when we're running this system for you, this is based off of what we know has worked. And then we'll try to build on that. Right. Because we've been through enough iterations to understand that this, this isn't going to really work well. And um, it's almost like that 20, uh, 80, 20 principle, right? So you put in 20% of your effort to get 80% of the results out. But if 20% comes from mm -hmm. your existing experiences, you know, have make it, major impact then it's it's great but i also say i mean the the time aspect you mentioned earlier right that if you just leave if you have enough data over time then that's totally fine too because that could be used to your advantage that way you're sort of collecting enough information on multiple variables and then at the end you've got the you know the entire data set of saying hey well now we can look at the different tests we've run or the different variables we've messed with and it seems like these are the ones that tell the story for us that we're going to do well um or not and yeah i think uh one i think one thing is though that and it'll be good to hear your thoughts on joel is the when we're talking about the impact of a b testing do you think it's really easy to get into the sort of analysis paralysis area right and sort of have become inefficient without A-B testing process, because that's the nature of A-B testing. There's always something to test. So do you think it's very easy for us to um, get into sort of analysis paralysis stage and how do you prevent that? Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose, um, 
I suppose analysis paralysis could be part of it, but I think there's another aspect that maybe I've seen more often, which is um, where you've got maybe, uh, I don't want to call them overzealous, but uh, you've got sort of a very active um, ops team that is constantly changing things. And eventually they change things so often that reps can never really get their footing uh, because the sand is always shifting beneath their feet and they're, you know, the, there's just too much change for them to take in. And so I think there's, there's something about, um, you know, and then you, and then you get the you know, sort of the classic problem of like, oh, actually we changed these five things all at the same time. And so we're not actually sure what the real, what the real thing is. And, and so then, yeah, you, you spend a lot of time looking at uh, graphs and charts and sort of wondering what's like, what is the thing that we changed that really is making the difference. And, you know, and to be fair, like it, it's in startup or scale up businesses, it's really hard to be very methodical and change one thing. Like, you know, you got numbers to hit and like everything, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the macro environment, like everything's changing. So like normally you end up, you know, with, with, with these things where like, Oh, we changed pricing at the same time we change this email campaign. So it, it's just, it's just very difficult. Um, but I, I think that, I mean, the main thing I think to be mindful of is, uh, you know, especially in the early stage, like you just got to make calls on stuff and, and you're going to be right or you're going to be wrong. But like, you know, spending too much time making the call is typically not a great idea um, in the earlier stages. And then separately, like changing too many things at once or constantly changing things is uh, can also be difficult. So there's some balance in the middle of, uh, you know, of, of changing too much and not changing enough that has to be, you know, struck for every business. Yeah. Have you found, have you found any particular like experience in the past where you thought, Hey, this, this was a good way of handling it like internally. Cause it seems like it's like, it seems like you've obviously experienced it. Right. And it sounds frustrating, right. When someone can't take it, there's too much changing and it's just I slow down. I can't, I don't understand what's working, what's not. Um, how did you, what, have you seen anything that's worked to help sort of curb that? If that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I think the most effective thing is just go talk to the reps and ask them what, like, how's it going? And like, how are you doing? And like, what are your challenges? And like, what do you, like, how do you feel about hitting your number? And if you don't think you're going to hit it, like, what are some of the, what are some of the things that come up? And if some of the things that are coming up are, man, like, you know, we just can't, like the, we're constantly being told, told something different to do, uh, then, you know, and if you start to hear that a few times, then I think you might think about, okay, well, like maybe, maybe we've stressed the team too much on, uh, in these aspects, I think is, is one. The other thing that, that sometimes you can see is just simple, like the level of just straight up mistakes going up. Um, yeah. so people not actually executing the playbook as you want them to execute it. Uh, I think it's sometimes a result of, um, you know, the playbook just shifting too quickly or wasn't well explained or, uh, or something. So I don't like, I don't know of a good quantitative way to do it, but I think if you're, if you're active and listening to your reps, you'll, the, the signal will start to, you know, come out of that noise. Well, the play, the playbooks, you know, is something that a tactic that's definitely being used effectively. Right. And especially for the enterprise teams, because as you get as you grow a team and, and it gets a bit larger and larger and the sales number of sales reps increase, you know, how it seems like at yes, where you probably have a, a playbook already in place and it's usually good so that everyone stays aligned, right? Not just marketing, but sales and all sales reps within that. So, yeah, I mean, with say, with saying that actually with a playbook, 
it's really easy to sort of get carried away though <laughs> with in the sense that if you do create a playbook it takes quite a bit of time to actually create but the idea is if you already have a lot of these frameworks and processes based and you know learnings i guess it's all about taking that again experiences um, to the playbook and that that's something i've done actually you sort of ask for constant feedback and sort of create the integrated feedback loop with the sales team so that you know hey were these leads good enough or do we need to nurture them differently do they need to know any other information before they even hop on uh, a sales call um, are there any other decision makers that we need to um, you know talk to again essentially right before we actually speak to the rep on this on the on the meeting booked call or anything like that have you found that to be something that you guys implement over at Yesware as well there's like a constant feedback loop from between sales and marketing to improve that sort of I guess productive work environment yeah we yeah we 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 do aspire to that I mean I think the other the other thing that we see is um you know especially in some of our larger customers is a lot of the innovation can actually come from the sales team themselves and so uh, you know, maybe, you, you know, just to give you an example, like you've got, you know, five teams that are set up to do more or less the same thing, maybe with different customer segments or different regions or something like that. You know, if the East region figures something out and then they share that, then, you know, every other region can get better. And, and we've actually yeah. done some studies on this that shows that teams that are consistently sharing content across the team actually significantly outperform ones that don't do that. Um, and so it's like, you know, y yes, sales and marketing should be communicating to improve it, but actually sales can communicate with sales and also improve their results. Yeah. That's actually interesting to, to have a uh, micro feedback loops within the department or within, within the team so that they can understand how to effectively sort of work together to get to, to, to improve results. I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if you think about like somebody is a, you know, let's say, you know, you're, someone has figured out a way, well, actually, we found a way to get somebody from the discovery to the demo meeting at a much higher percentage. And we did it because we, you know, we sent them the white paper immediately afterwards, and then we reminded them 10 times and called them the day of so they show up to the demo. And if, if that results in, you know, instead of getting, you know, you know, 50 people that are 50, 50% 50 of the people that's up to 75% of the people that's up, like, then you've probably improved your whole funnel, um, yeah. full stop. And so the ability to then take that knowledge and share it with now your whole team got better because one person figured out a way to get somebody to show up to the demo. Yeah. No, I think that's something I've, I think I might test it out actually to see whether we're doing that across the clients, because one thing we do, we focus obviously on the growth marketing front, but, uh, from sales, we'll usually have support. We act as support in that nature. So it's something definitely we'll, we'll look at testing out and definitely sort of encourage people to test it out themselves. But um, no, Joel, I mean, is there is there anything that you feel that you really want to share with everyone with, regard, with regards to either scaling their sales team or like driving growth more effectively in the very beginning or in the scale up phases? Um, because a lot of these businesses, they don't, that a lot of the audience and the businesses here would say that they sell to like the enterprise teams, which are more, you know, having a, has a panel or a research team of like multiple influencers, multiple decision makers. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to share in terms of tips or anything else before we sort of sign off or close out? Um, I, I mean, I, I suppose the, the broader points that we said, me again, we're biased, but I think, you know, uh, it makes sense to leverage technology to try to drive productivity and, and 
and technology is not a panacea. Um, it's not going to solve all your problems. And sometimes people can use technology. You know, we talked earlier about spray and pray. Like you can definitely use tech to, to, you know, do a lot of damage very quickly. And, and you'll typically, uh, you know, you, Whereas you typically tend to see the wins from that, like if I send 10,000 emails and one person replies back and says like, oh, yeah, I want a demo, you might right. think that's great. But, you know, did you did you actively piss off the other 9,999 uh, by spamming them? And did you now sort of burn out your territory? It's like it's very easy to see the the positive metrics, but it's very, very difficult to assess the negative metrics um, of actions like that. And so I I think for for. For everyone, it's like you know you want to um, you know you want to try to use use technology sort of um, you know you want to embrace it, but you want to use it judiciously. Um, it, it's not going to fix a broken selling process, and so I think the the most important thing is to really understand your customer, be a good listener, ask good questions, keep trying to to tailor your selling process and your and your product or, or service to the customer's needs. And if you keep doing that, um, and you sort of you know go out and, and and seek out best practice and go and execute those and hire the right people, you know you got a you got a good shot. And even if you do all those things, you still may not make it because it's just very difficult to grow and scale a company, but um, you know, at least you put yourself in, uh, in a position to, to succeed. No, I agree. We talk a bit about, uh, personalization and actually making an effort on either researching accounts or top accounts that they want to go after and the people within the list, right. That they're trying to reach out to. And if they're trying to drive conversations, well, in the end, that's the key thing. It's a conversation. So before you, cause you sell it, you're selling essentially the conversation before you're actually selling the software or, or whatever product you're trying to sell. Right. So mm -hmm. this idea of let's connect first and then we can see whether this will be a good fit for you. And if you've done your homework, then you're looking at a more successful pipeline or a more successful outreach process or whatever you're trying to implement there. So yeah, no, I definitely agree. But um, no, I appreciate that, Joel. I mean, it's been great having you, of course, everyone. There we have it. <laughs> A-B testing is obviously crucial. And everyone knows that, you know, on this chat, we're always talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, growth hacking or marketing experiments, even running like sales experiments. But if you deploy some form of testing, uh, you're only going to ever increase your chances. The more tests you run, the better, but within reason of actually gathering valuable insights. So really you want to understand use testing effectively to understand what's working and what's not. And with the amount of time that you need, right, to understand that. So, you know, definitely recommend using it. And what Joel's mentioned as well is there's been quite a few strategies and tactics that you can use or just a few tweaks that you can have within the within department, but also cross departmental to improve how you how effective your sales process is going to be. But no, Joel, thanks for uh, coming on to the Growth Vertical podcast. It's been great actually speaking to you. Uh, it's definitely been unique and insightful, honestly. And there's some there's quite a few things that I'm going to try and um, implement like the feedback loop system within a micro environment. So within the sales team, that was pretty great. Um, and I do think that there's more actionable insights that people can take away from this chat. But um, if people had any questions or anything, um, you know, where can, where can people find you? Where can people interact with you? And uh, yeah. Yeah, well, if uh, for for folks that are interested in um, the Hard Sell podcast, uh, we're on most of the platforms. You can find it uh, yesor.com forward slash podcast. Um, 
uh, we also have like, we've been writing sales con for content for 10 years at Yesware. And again, I'm biased, but I think it's pretty good. Um, and it's all free. So you can access that at uh, yesware.com forward slash blog. You can also um, start a, a free trial of Yesware. We have a free tier you can, you can keep forever if that's of interest. And uh, if you want to be in touch with me, you can just do that at, at Jay Stevenson. And I think I'm even going to give uh, Elon Musk Twitter a shot after being off of Twitter for a very long period of time. So uh, at Icono Joel is the, is the handle there. Yeah. I mean, um, what I'll do is I'll also link it in the description for the show notes so that we can, um, people can actually find that really easily. Um, but yeah, no, I would recommend it as well. And I've actually yet to, I'm probably going to also increase activity on Twitter on Elon Musk's uh, Twitter. Let's see how this goes because it's everyone's it's honestly, it's honestly already so much, so talked about everyone's talking about it so much that I feel like there's just going to be another influx on Twitter and, you know, people moving away from other platforms temporarily just to see and test it out. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's pretty interesting by, I guess a lot of people thought it was no one's really going to, that wasn't going to go through, but I guess it did. Right. So um, it would be great, but no, I appreciate this, uh, Joel. And uh, it's been honestly great having you and everyone. I hope you found this episode useful. If you did like it, then please do whatever, wherever you're consuming this content, do like, subscribe, share, follow. And if you do want to see any particular content or want to see Joel back on the podcast, then, you know, feel free to drop it in the comments uh, and we'll look at what else we can talk about uh, from a sales strategies and tactics perspective. But um, we'll see you guys soon. Take it easy.